Today's scripture readings are found in 1 Samuel chapters 18, 19, and 20. We will be reading selected verses. The text will be on the screen behind me. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Verses 20 to 21. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Chapter 19, verses 4 through 7. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Verses 11 through 12. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, 
Tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Chapter 20, verses 30 through 33. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, all right, well, good morning. If you're new uh, with us, I want to especially welcome you to the Parks Church. Uh, this is what we do here in terms of teaching. We preach through books of the Bible, uh, by and large, and, and we're making our way through, as you probably picked up, uh, first, first and Second Samuel. And uh, uh, these three chapters kind of feel like a soap opera, right? Right? A, lot of, a lot of intense action, a lot of things going on, and uh, if you weren't with us last week, um, just flip a page over, and, and 1 Samuel 17 is the most famous chapter in all of your Bible, probably, right? David and Goliath, and if you just stop it there, uh, after the battle, uh, the victory's been won, right? The, the giant, uh, the Philistine Goliath has been slayed. Things seem to be on the up and up for Israel, just on, on the surface, potentially. They go, and they plunder, and they, they enjoy that. And uh, then, then we come to these chapters, these three, and I wanted to take these three intentionally, and, and two, as we come to the end of First Samuel, we're probably going to pick up uh, our pace a little bit like this, uh, because it's, it's similar scenes uh, with, 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 with really the same flavor and, and thread throughout, and so I don't want to miss it uh, for us, and so that's why we're going to tackle uh, three chapters today. One of the commentaries I've loved studying uh, alongside First uh, Samuel uh, is, is by a guy named Peter Lightheart. And I think he, he hits it well, and I'm going to read the quote to you. Um, it says this. It says, In the valley of Elah, David proved himself a giant killer. But Goliath was not the only giant around. Saul was also a giant. And like Goliath, he would come against David with a spear. David was to find that fighting an Israelite giant was trickier, was a trickier affair than killing a lion or a bear or slinging a stone at a Philistine's head on the battlefield. That line that strikes me is that it's fighting an Israelite giant is a trickier affair. There's two giants that we've just been introduced to, Goliath and Saul we have seen, coming against David, coming against the Israelites. But the, the victory over Goliath, the, the literal physical giant before David, as great and as, as massive as that victory was, the, the victory that is taking place over Saul is even trickier, and I'd submit to you, even greater. You say, Kyle, why, why is that trickier, right, than the, you know, 14-foot giant and all, but, you know, like, why is this? Well, it's trickier because you have Saul, who's in the house. He's an Israelite. He's, he's David's king. He's the nation of Israel's king. He's ultimately going to be David's father-in-law right? He's his best friend's dad. 
He's leading, as I said, this nation. And oh yeah, by the way, he's the guy who David is taking his job. That's the giant in this text. And I actually think that this text is quite applicable to our lives. Maybe on a cursory reading or even as you heard Vivian read the text, you're like, how in the world is this relevant to my life currently? How is this applicable to where I am? And I hope to unpack that faithfully as the Spirit allows, because I think it hits closer to home than we're maybe even willing to admit. But the first place this text starts is not in high drama. The first place this text starts in, in uh, verses 1 through 5, look at it, in chapter 18, is with what? A sweet friendship. A friendship between Jonathan and David. Now, this, by modern terms and even ancient terms, is an unlikely friendship. Jonathan, if you'll recall, is Saul's oldest son. Battle-tested. You remember the first introduction to, to uh, Jonathan in 1 Samuel was that Jonathan was the one who defeated who? The Philistines. Remember, Samuel told Saul, your job as king, your primary job as king, one of the jobs that you have, you must do, is defeat who? The Philistines. And Saul kind of skirts that responsibility. That's that partial obedience that is true of Saul's life. And who do we see come into the scene and defeat the Philistines? It's Jonathan. So we see him victorious. We see him humble. We see him have all of these incredible qualities. But him being Saul's oldest son means he's next in line to be king. He's, he's the next heir. He's the heir. He's the one that the crown, if you will, will be placed upon him except what happened. His daddy and his disobedience ruined it for him and the whole line. Where God says, your lineage will not carry on the kingship. And we know that that got passed to David. David became the anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And so here, Jonathan is face to face, eye to eye with David. He sees the victory on the battlefield. I believe at this point he knows that David is God's anointed one. What do you think the fleshly response would be? Yeah. Rivalry? Jealousy? Well, hey, I didn't, I didn't get my shot against Goliath. Hey, this is the guy, this is the kid taking my, my place? Lord, this is your anointed? Look at me. I, I've proven myself. I've been humble. I've been the one in the battle. I, I also defeated the Philistines. Let's not forget it. I've been the one serving my dad. I've been the one serving this kingdom. But what do we see? We don't see any of that in Jonathan. And instead, the text is so beautiful to paint this picture of Jonathan with David to say he was knit to the soul of David. Look at these words, verse one. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Knit with his soul, loved him as his own soul. And then it said in verse three that Jonathan made a covenant with David. Like this is a deep friendship that we, we to be honest, don't have any context for don't have any context for. And this is not just word language. This is not just verbal affirmation. This also is selfless, really sacrificial and selfless giving. Look at what Jonathan does. Look at it. It gives him everything he has externally. All his armor, his bow, his sword, everything he has. And if you remember in Israel, how many swords were there? Two. Saul had one and Jonathan had one. And now what does he do? He gives it all to David. Why? Because he recognizes in humility 
who God's anointed is. And there's no bitterness. There's no rivalry. There's no no uh, condemning David. It is all sacrificial love toward David. Right, And we could go on and on about th- this friendship and, and how vulnerable and how loyal Jonathan will be. And you'll see that uh, in the text as well. But I can't get over the fact that Jonathan hands over, willingly hands over power to David. All the things he had, he could have held on to them, but he goes, no. In worship to God, I'm giving God's anointed all that I have. That's a friend. Listen, that is a true friend friend. That is mark of true friendship. And I want to make a note here, because I think it's an important note, that some, some commentators will look at this text, and they'll interpret it as Jonathan and David having an inappropriate relationship. Or not, they don't even call it inappropriate. They just said that they have a romantic relationship. Let me tell you, that is complete garbage. That what they have here is completely appropriate, completely obedient before the Lord, and it is completely righteous and holy. It is completely what the Bible paints as what a true friendship is. Here's what happens. Our culture sexualizes everything, including this. And I think one of the things that has gotten hijacked in a culture that sexualizes everything is relationships between men. You just do a cursory search or, or a look online, which I'm not always a pro that, but if you look at it and you look around the demographics of people who struggle with friendship, you know the number one in all surveys and all studies, it's men. It's that men lack intimate friendships. It's that men lack a knitness together and a covenanting like Jonathan and David had where there is a selflessness, there's a vulnerability, there's a transparency, right? Our culture has hijacked that. The enemy has hijacked that. And so let me tell you, it is time that the church, we as the church, redeem that, right? And I'm speaking to men particularly here with good, healthy, God-fearing relationships where our soul can be knit together for the glory of God. And that's how he designs it. That's how he built it. And Jonathan and David are a picture of that. And again, that, that, I don't, I don't want to make the whole sermon around that, but that, that's how it starts. I love that's how the text starts because then the rest of the chapters, whoa, that David's life, he is on the run time and time again, but the chapter starts with God's good gift and grace of him having a friend like Jonathan. But let's continue. And, and oh yeah, by the way, um, I want you to see this with Jonathan. He's laying down his power and pointing to David. For you New Testament scholars, that should remind you of someone in your New Testament. John the Baptist, the forerunner, right, for Christ, the one who paves the way, who says, it's, it's not me, it's him. That's what Jonathan is doing here. And what were the words out of, of, of John's mouth? I must decrease so he can increase. Jonathan's doing that. Jonathan is displaying that here in this text. And then we get to the other giant, Saul. And one thing we have been exposed to in Saul week after week is his pride. In subtle ways and in not so subtle ways in other times. We know that Saul is tormented. That's the word the Bible uses here because of his choice to live his life outside of the order of God, outside of the covering God. It is clear this week that Saul's pride is going to manifest itself in the way pride always manifests itself, 
And that's manifesting itself this week in deep, sinful jealousy. Pride will always come out in a form of jealousy or envy because the proud are constantly worried about someone or something being better or having more glory or receiving credit where credit is not due. What we have seen from Saul is that he was building his own kingdom and everything in his kingdom hinged upon who? Him. I was trying to think back if I've ever done an extensive talk or teaching on jealousy. And I couldn't find one. The closest thing came in Galatians 5, which we preached like seven years ago here. um, Where jealousy and envy are listed as fruit of the flesh. I believe it's in verse 21 of chapter 5. These are perennial problems. These are problems that all of us struggle with to some extent or nature. um, Leads us to envy. But oftentimes they're overlooked. And this morning, I want to do a deep dive on a look of jealousy in Saul's life. First Samuel has gifted us kind of these dissecting moments where we've been able to see the anatomy of sin. We've been able to see the the anatomy of of disobedience and the anatomy of worship, true worship in Hannah's life and and the anatomy of faith and, and lack of faith. And this morning is another one of those dissecting moments where we get to pull back the layers on jealousy and envy. Now, let me make a statement here about jealousy biblically, because some of you, you're thinking, wait a minute. If jealousy is a sin, I know my Bible well enough to go that the Bible says that our God is a jealous God. What is it talking about? Well, there is a holy jealousy, right? Just like there is a holy anger. And holy jealousy is this. It's the desire to keep for yourself what rightly belongs to you. That's holy jealousy. So when God is a je- says God is a jealous God, it's because he is trying to keep for himself what rightly belongs to him. So in the context of where that verse is written, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about his image bearers. You know what else he's talking about? What else he's jealous for? His glory. Because glory belongs where? We did a whole series in January on it, right? Where does it belong? To God and God alone. But what do you see in this text? Even when the the soldiers come out, the the ladies are singing about the soldiers and their victory. What does it say? Oh, David in his 10,000s and Saul in his thousands. Saul goes, wait a minute. Why are they singing about David's glory? They should be singing about my glory. Yeah, I know David did that, but it's about about me. And you see this, this jealousy and this envy. Now, sinful jealousy or envy, here it is. It's the desire to have for yourself what rightly belongs to another. That's sinful jealousy. That's how the Bible describes envy, okay? Never does the Bible describe envy in the positive light, okay? There's no such thing as holy envy, okay? Like, I've got holy envy. Nope. Envy is always sin. Because you are trying to desire or to have for yourself what rightly belongs to another. I love what J.D. Greer says about jealousy. He says this. He says, jealousy is a hunger you simply cannot satisfy. The more you eat, the emptier you feel, and it forces you to feed it once again, and again, and again, and again. And if you've ever been riddled with envy or jealousy, you know that to be true. It forces you to keep feeding and feasting on it again and again. And that is the story in chapters 18, 19, and 20. Notice it doesn't stop at Saul throwing the spear one time, does it? My goodness, how many times in this text does he throw his spear? 
Well, David, you see it at least three times in the text. And then also he tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, with his spear. It just keeps compounding. It keeps growing. Why? Because he has to feed it more and more and more. And his jealousy is growing and growing and growing. And so let's look at it. Let's use Saul's life. And we're also going to look at David's response. Because some of you, some of you sit where that's happening to you potentially. Right? The opposition, the um, persecution or suffering is coming at you. I want to look at David's response. That's also a major in this text, all right? But the first thing with this anatomy of, of jealousy is, what's the source of power? What's the source of power for Saul in his interpretation? Where does Saul's power come from? I kind of tipped my hand to this already with the whole spear. Um, verse 11, Saul's power came from his spear. The, pa- the, 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 the title, the position, external things that Saul had, um, When Israel asked for a king, right? Remember they were in a season where they didn't have kings and they asked Samuel for a king. Do you remember what their request was specifically? They asked Samuel to give them a king like the other nations. You are seeing Saul's answer to their request play out right now. Saul is leading them with the power that is just like the other nations. All of the other nations, how did they leave? By force, by external strength, and Saul is trying to exert that upon David. And so we see the spear here represent that external power that Saul is exerting. Now, the only other mention of the word spear or somebody having a spear in 1 Samuel, do you know who it is? Last week, 1 Samuel chapter 17, the only other one mentioned that has a spear is Goliath. David says, you come at me with your spear. Now, some commentators make a note and say, potentially the spear that Saul is thrusting at David is Goliath's. I like that, but yeah, that's kind of what I read. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) Where's his strength? Where was Goliath's strength? In his spear, in his size, in the externals. Where's David's source of power? It's the exact same thing he said to Goliath. Chapter 17, verse 45. You come at me with spear. Here's David's source. And I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Saul, you come at me with your spear. But David goes, I'm here in the presence of God. My power is from the Lord of hosts. It's from Yahweh alone. Where Saul is growing as a king like the nation's David is growing as a king after God's own heart, full of the Spirit of God. You see this play out in all facets of these chapters, but potentially it plays out most of all in his reactions, or maybe his lack of reactions, when David's true wisdom and true power is on display. Verse 15, if you look at it in in, in your Bible, it says, And when Saul saw that he, David, had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Now, this is not, the word success there in Hebrew is the word that means prosper. This isn't just talking about David's battles with the Philistines, but as Saul peered in to David's whole life, he just saw him continuing to prosper, continuing to succeed. What does that mean? Because we, when we hear prosper, we think materially. 
And sure, David externally had some things going, some victories that happened. What it means in the Hebrew, the word prosper means to act wisely. So when Saul looked at David, what he saw was somebody living and acting under the wisdom and authority of God. That's the success that struck awe and fear in Saul. It wasn't the battles militarily or anything like that primarily. It was that that David was acting under the authority of God, and that struck fear in Saul. In verse 9, what's interesting, look at it. And I just noticed this at the first service when Vivian read, and it said, And Saul, I, David, from that day on. Like there was a moment when Saul recognized, Saul and David something completely different. I think possibly potentially saw the anointing that God had placed on him and go, I'm keeping my eye on you. And when it says that Saul had his eye on him, it meant that Saul wants to kill him. That's not like saying, like, I'm just going to keep an eye on you. And we're just going to watch out. No, like, I have my eye on you to kill you. Why? Because you're a threat to my glory. You're a threat to my kingdom, my pride, my position. But how does David respond to Saul? I think David teaches us a lot about living in prox- proximity to those who oppose us or press against us. Because my flesh, just be honest, if I get a th- one spear thrown at me, my immediate flesh, just be honest, is to pull the spear out of the wall and throw it back, right? Spear for spear. Toe for toe, right? What what is that? Uh, Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? I want to make sure I give you the opposite reaction, right? That counters your punch. What does David do? None of that ever in these chapters. And listen, we know that David is not against going toe to toe. How do you know that? Chapter 17. He went toe to toe with the giant. But David is led by the Spirit. The Spirit had a different reaction for him in chapter 17. The Spirit had a different reaction for him in 18, 19, and 20. And you see David operating in wisdom and not retaliation. And then verse 17 through 30 um, enters Michael. These are Saul's, uh, two, two of Saul's daughters, but Michael is the one that he presents uh, second time uh, to David to marry. Because David says with his first and his oldest, he said, I'm not, I'm not worthy. Um, and we find out because Michael, Michael loved David. Michael, uh, Michael had a deep affection for him. And on the surface, Saul's offer of his daughter is very generous, right? But then you find out that this is a manipulative move to destroy David. He's using his own daughter to try to kill David. And he says, yeah, I want, I want to give you her, but, but to get her hand, you need to go out to battle and bring me back a hundred foreskins. It's okay. That's kind of weird. I know, right? Like Saul goes, this is what I need back. Um, and, uh, you know, just from a historical perspective, it's not that weird, okay? Like, a king would ask for them to bring back things to verify that they actually won the battle, right? They didn't have a 24 news cycle where it was like, oh, we won the war. You know, they didn't have social media. They didn't have texting, okay? This was how they would, would verify that. And I just love this scene because David's like, okay, like, that's what you want? Here's 200. 
like Saul, who is so jealous, so full of rage, so in awe of David, David comes back. And I don't think he was like being a punk about it. I think he was like, I want to show you how much I love your daughter. I want to show you how much, how, how, how much zeal I have for the Lord and for her. Here's 200. Uh, this reminds me of Genesis 50, 20, right? What man uses for evil, God turns for good, right? David's success here just further ticks off Saul and his rage is at an all-time high. How do I get rid of this guy? Why is it an all-time high? Because as much as Saul refuses to believe it, he is realizing he's not in charge. You want to talk about something that pokes at the balloon of pride in our lives. It's us realizing we're not in control. He realizes God is in control. And God has anointed David. And he's seeing it time and time again, but he continues to press and press and press. And look at this um, in verse 29 of chapter 18. And after all of this, um, verse 28 actually says, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. So Saul wasn't dumb to what was going on. He knew very clearly what was going on. And Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Does that not seem written backwards to anybody else? Like, why does this not say that David was Saul's enemy? Because the author is wanting to make a very clear point here that a shift has taken place. That the central figure officially taking the stage in the text moving forward is David. And Saul is David's enemy. Make no mistake about it. This is a shift. And so then in chapters 19 and 20, again, like I said, we get the same things taking place, just a little bit of a different flavor. Jonathan enters the scene, Saul's son, David's best friend, and he's trying to mediate between his dad and David in chapter 19. And, and I find this really interesting in chapter 19. Jonathan reminds Saul of how David defeated Goliath and saved Israel from the Philistines. He's like, Dad, don't you remember? Like, this is the guy. Like, you're trying to kill the guy that delivered our nation. Which, for me, on the surface, seems like a real weird strategy from a son to a father who's raging over that very fact, but that's what Jonathan did. And in, 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 in verse 11, excuse me, in verse 5, Jonathan uses the same language his dad uses in chapter 11. So Saul, if you, you recall in chapter 11, he's just had done some more partial obedience, and he thinks he's defeated and plundered the whole enemy, and he hasn't. Remember, he kept some things for himself. And uh, he comes to Samuel, he goes, look at the great deliverance that the Lord has accomplished for Israel. And Samuel's like, what are you talking about? You didn't do what the Lord asked you to do. Oh, sure, you did some things, but you didn't do exactly what the Lord had called you to do. And here in this chapter, Jonathan uses that same line against Saul about David. He goes, listen, in David, the Lord has accomplished a great, great deliverance for Israel. And I promise you that perked Saul up. To go, what you didn't do, David has done. So hear me, every line is reaffirming Saul is not in control, God is. And David is executing God's plan and purpose as his anointed one. And so again, what do you have in chapter 19? Saul tries to kill David with a spear. <laughs> in his own house. And David escapes. 
And you see at the end of chapter 19, um, a very confused, this is verse 23 and 24. You see some confusing things taking place where like Saul will strip down and it says that he, he prophesies. And they're like, is, is Saul among the prophets? What I want you to see in verse 23 is, and again, this is an unusual part. It says that the spirit of God came upon him. Now recall when we see the spirit of God versus when we see the spirit of the Lord. When the spirit of the Lord is there, we know that God is there moving for his glory and for his fame, right? Here we have the spirit of God. So it is meant to key us in to go, this is a point of chaos for Saul. This is a point, again, of torment because Saul has chosen to live outside of the covering of God. And so it's all of this disordering and this confusion and this chaos. We're meant to feel it as readers to go, listen, this is what happens when you live outside of the covering of God. It's not, it's not prophecy as we would look at it in a positive light. It's something totally, totally different. And then into chapter 20 that Vivian read, more of the same. And actually, in this chapter, Saul curses Jonathan, his son. Vivian read that. And Jonathan continues to love David. And once again, Saul tries to kill David. And what happens? David escapes. The anointed goes away. And so I want to close. Um, in in uh, this text, I've got to be honest with you, this text this week, felt very pastoral to my heart. And I, I don't mean like, like it pastored my heart. And one of the things I wanted to do in this moment was to be a pastor, kind of have a pastoral interpretation of what I think is going on around jealousy. And maybe give as much as I can a humble warning to us from this text. Because Saul, if you really understand Saul, it's devastating. It should break your heart, but, but I think what we do is we can detach our own lives from that and not see that we are very susceptible to the same sins Saul was participating in. And the first thing is this. Um, again, these are just four, I think, pastoral notes that I had for my own heart. Jealousy is a terrible master. You see that in this text. It's a terrible master. It mastered Saul. The writer of Proverbs in, in, in chapter 14 would, says that envy rots the bones Literally from the inside out, it just rots us. Um, I think one of the great avenues in our culture for jealousy and envy to enter into our lives, um, I've got to be honest, is in the place of social media. Social media in those contexts feeds this idea of persona, of seeing things that we believe maybe are due us or seeing things that we don't have that we desire but I also think that social media um, can be used by us to make others feel jealous, to stir up jealousy in someone else or envy. And, and again, I, maybe you would intentionally go there. Maybe you do it unintentionally. But maybe by the way you post things or put up things that you're thinking, I, I hope it's perceived this way or I hope it's heard this way. And that may be innocent, but for some of you, maybe it's not so innocent hoping that a group of people see this and perceive you in a certain way, hoping that it stirs up jealousy in them or envy in them. You say, Kyle, it sounds like you're against social media. Fair. Um, <laughs> and I would ask, just, just a simple ask. 
does social media make you less anxious? Or as you sit and scroll, as you view and perceive, does it make you more anxious? That might be an indicator. Okay, a, a little less close to home. I'll use, just, I'll use Saul on this one. How about that? Um, Saul's jealousy caused erratic emotions leading to irrational actions. Did you get the number of different emotions demonstrated by Saul here? Listen, it says he loved, he feared, he was in awe, he was raging, he was in, in anger, and on and on and on in just these three chapters. These erratic emotions all over the map, rooted from a jealous heart, causing him to make some serious, irrational actions, right? Using his daughter, hating and cursing his son. He said, Kyle, I would never do that. You ever used, and this is my third pastoral point, has jealousy ever led you to use or treat those around you as a means to your end rather than loving them as image bearers? That's jealousy. That's what jealousy does is it causes us to look out and even and particularly those closest to us to use them even as a means to our personal ends, to our personal glory, to our personal puffing up. And then lastly, um, jealousy blinds us to the real enemy. Jealousy blinds us to the real enemy. Saul was trying to kill the wrong thing. He thought, if I could just get rid of David, then all my problems would be solved. But sin causes us to believe that the enemy is outside of ourselves. What Saul needed to kill more than anything was not David, was his own pride. His pride that manifests itself this week in a deep jealousy, a deep envy, leading to a deep rage. You see, Saul here over these three chapters is looking to kill something external to curb the anguish born within him. And that is my fear as a pastor of this church and even in my own heart that I will begin to try to fix something externally to curb an internal angst and division, a torment, if you will, without ever looking in. Saul is so busy in this text, whether it's Michael or Jonathan or David, blaming others instead of turning to God and looking at his own heart in light of God's will. You see, David, in his responses in this text, are one thing. But David, as a pointer to Christ, his responses in other times are significant as well. Because you know as well as I do that David doesn't get it all right. David is not perfect, but what David gets right is the response when he falls. What David gets right is, is when he feels the talons of pride, when he feels the talons of jealousy and envy and lust and all of those things grip his heart. What David gets right is where he goes. He doesn't go and just try to stop those or kill those or, or blame it on somebody else. Here's what he does, Psalm 139, the end of that chapter. Here's what David says. Search me. 
Search me, O Lord. That's the response. And so listen, as believers in this room, we come into a space in a place like this, and I hope we have enough, enough faith in Jesus to go search us. Search us. Are there any roots of jealousy and pride and envy in me? Search us, Holy Spirit. Move in our lives, move in my life so that, Lord, nothing hinders, so that I don't find myself in a disordered life outside of your presence. Tormented like Saul, plagued in chaos like Saul. And for some of you, you come into this room and you go, Kyle, I've been trying to fix my life this whole time. Like, that's why I'm here, because I needed you to tell me how to fix my life. I, I needed somebody or something to tell me how to fix my life. And what I heard this morning, Kyle, is that I need to, I need to remove jealousy from me. What I heard this morning is I don't want to be like Saul. I want to be like David, right? I, I need to do all these. No, 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 no. Let, let me make something very clear. For you, that's not the call. The jealousy, the anger, the rage, the envy, all of those are just indicators of something deeper. And you trying to uproot those on your own will ultimately end like Saul. What you need, what you need to see is this morning is that you can't uproot those in your power and your strength. And that's the good news of Jesus. That's the good news of the one that David is pointing to. Going, you want to know how you ultimately respond to these things? You look at Jesus who lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you deserved and you trust him. And when you trust him, he gives you the Holy Spirit to be able to uproot those things. He gives you the power. The power is not in you. The power is not in external things trying to help you do it. The power is in Jesus Christ alone to remove the root of sin. And so wherever you fall in those two camps, your responses to this text are quite different, right? They're all of us throwing our lives at the feet of Jesus. Many of you who have done that are now going, Lord, search me. Holy Spirit, help me move in my heart, move in my life. And so that's how we're gonna steward this time as we get communion, by praying Psalm 139, search me. And so hosts, um, if you would, come, come forward and and I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to grab communion. And that is what I want your prayer to be in your seat as you grab the elements. Search me, O Lord. Is there any way in me that is not honoring to you? Particularly this morning, is the root of jealousy or envy, is it in there? Pride. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to steward these moments moving forward that you would free us from the master of jealousy, that you would free us from the plague of envy that so easily entangles our hearts. So Holy Spirit, I entrust you to do what only you can do. Do that in me, do that in us, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.